In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. In our first reading from Acts chapter 7 is a portion of the account of St. Stephen's martyrdom. Now Stephen was among the first seven deacons whom the apostles ordained uh, in Acts chapter 6. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, there arises a problem. We could even call it uh, the first uh, church administrative problem. Uh, The widows, uh, particularly uh, the widows who are Hellenists, who are Greek-speaking Jews, are being neglected in the daily distributions uh, from the church. So this is not good, uh, that there are those within the household of faith that are being uh, neglected, uh, whom the church should be be caring for. And so the 12, that is the 12 Uh, disciples, uh, now with Judas, of course, replaced by Matthias, gather together all the church, gather together the lowercase d disciples uh, to find men to take up this as a part of their ministry. Because the church uh, was growing exponentially. Uh, So we have, if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, when Moses was overwhelmed and his very wise father-in-law Jethro says, uh, you can't judge all the people yourself. Because Moses was doing, if anyone had a dispute, had a problem, had an issue, needed something, they were going to Moses. And he couldn't do it. So as the church, I mean, this, this would have happened anyway. As the church was growing exponentially, it was impractical for the apostles to do everything themselves. And more to the point, it would have been wrong for the apostles to handle this themselves. Because as they say, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. We have to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's our primary calling as apostles. And so the disciples, lowercase d, go out, functioning as, and maybe only Jonathan will get this, functioning as sort of the first commission on ministry. So we have this apparatus in the church where if someone wants to be ordained, they go before the commission of ministry and these different bodies, and then they're, they're formally presented to the bishop. So they go out, you know, seeking qualified candidates, and they bring back these seven, or maybe they, perhaps they bring back more than seven, but they only uh, picked seven. They bring back these seven whom the apostles then ordain, Acts 6.6. 6. They, that is the apostles, prayed and they laid their hands on them. Again, among the seven was Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, the scripture says. And Stephen, though among those responsible, you know, one of his duties was to care for 
widows in the church, that wasn't his only duty. Because Stephen, we see, is a dynamic minister of the word. He's powerful in speech. His opponents from the synagogue who argue with him, verse 10 of chapter 6, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Because as the gospel goes out, as the church grows... Do you think the opponents of Jesus, that Israel as a nation, which corporately had rejected their Messiah, do you think after Jesus, they're just like, oh, well, we'll let this Jesus thing just keep going? No, they're, they double down. And so there's opposition to the growth of the church. And so Stephen engages them. We could say apologetically, he's trying to win them over. And, and they couldn't withstand his wisdom, the spirit in which he spoke, because he spoke in the spirit of God. In addition to being a mighty, what we might call orator, Stephen was a wonder worker. He performed many signs and wonders. So many come to faith through this ministry, the ministry of the diaconate in Acts chapter 6. Uh, even Jewish priests, those who were had rejected Jesus Christ, who were part of the Levitical priesthood under the Old Covenant, Acts says that many of them converted and came to Christ. So it's an amazing ministry. Uh, and if you read Acts chapter 6 and 7, which we get a, a brief biopic of the life of one of the saints, namely Stephen, and I would encourage you to read it. The story of Stephen, and you probably picked up, it, picked up on it even in our short reading we had today. His life and his ministry is going to remind you of someone. It's going to be uncanny, the resemblance that he has to someone whom we, we know well. We could say the protagonist of Holy Scripture. Stephen is like Jesus. His ministry is like Jesus' ministry. Because, and we get this in the gospel today, because Stephen's ministry is Jesus' ministry. Did you catch in the gospel just something amazing that Jesus said? I mean, everything was good. We have John 14, 6 for crying out loud. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We, we kind of expect that. We know that. Jesus says, well, if, if, you, if you're not seeing that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, at least believe me on account of the works that I'm performing. Jesus performed signs and miracles that no one could do unless God was with him. And Jesus says, he who believes in me is going to do greater works than these. Because I go to my Father. That's the doctrine of the ascension. Jesus' local absence that he's now veiled from our eyes, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and by the Spirit, his ministry continues 
through the church. So it's not just one place at a time like it was in his earthly sojourn. But those who are united with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, implement implement his reign and his rule wherever the church goes. So Stephen's ministry is Jesus' ministry. The church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, united with and commissioned by her ascended Lord, who rules heaven and earth, continues the ministry of Jesus. Or more precisely, Jesus continues and expands his ministry through the church. Through the church. Stephen is like Jesus. He's united with Jesus. His ministry is like that of Jesus because it is Jesus' ministry in which he ministers. And like Jesus, Stephen faces opposition. Like Jesus, he is taken before the Sanhedrin on charges of blasphemy. And when before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, Stephen gives an incredible sermon. Incredible. I mean, he gives a synopsis on the spot. On the spot. He gives a synopsis of the story of Israel from Abraham to Solomon, drawing on some deep cuts, quoting Amos, you know, and then quoting the, someone like Isaiah, you know, top top 40. He does all this on the spot. In Luke 12, Luke wrote Acts. Luke and Acts, we can think of them as like a two-volume story, but one thing, if you will. And in Luke 12, Jesus is, is... telling them, and in many places in the Gospels, he warns his followers that what I'm going through, you're going to go through. Just like I am going to be drugged before the rulers and authorities, before the synagogue leaders, so are you. And he, he prepares them in Luke 12. He says, when you are before the synagogue, when you are before the rulers and authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'm paraphrasing. But the Holy Spirit will give it to you. The Holy Spirit will lead you what to say. This is what we're seeing here. We're seeing this come to fruition. We're seeing Jesus make good on his promise. So he preaches this incredible sermon. Go read it. It's it's unbelievable that he does this. And it's brilliant because he has this thread going as he's recounting the history of Israel, as he's telling the biblical story. He threads this polemic through the whole thing. It's polemical. He's building a case against Israel, against the family of God according to the flesh who corporately had rejected their God. Does that mean that Every single person who 
was an Israelite, who was a Jew in the first century, rejected Jesus. No. The, the, the first Christians were, by and large, Jewish. It's just the prologue of John's gospel. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many who did receive him, because some did, he gave them the right to be called the sons of God. So he, he's going through the Old Testament, and, he, and he's saying what you all are doing is nothing new. This is what we've always done. He's building this case of how they perpetually rejected God. They've rejected his prophets, and in recent days they have rejected his son. And as Stephen starts to land the plane, conclude his sermon, he says, drawing on Deuteronomy 10, Moses' rebuke of the Israelites. He quotes Moses. He says to the Sanhedrin, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, as you can imagine, because you got the end of the story, this enrages the Sanhedrin. Scripture says they gnash their teeth at them. They're angry. But Stephen wasn't finished. No. He's given a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ at God's right hand. He proclaims in the midst of the councils, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He invokes Daniel 7. He appropriates the title of the Son of Man, the one like a human being. We find out that it was in fact a human being. One like the Son of Man, the human being that shares Yahweh's throne. Jesus said something similar, and the reaction was the same. Well, this is the final straw. Like Jesus, Stephen is killed outside the city gates. But unlike Jesus, he is stoned. He is not, not crucified, but stoned. And he is executed without the consent of the Romans. And with Jesus, they're like, our law says he must be put to death, but we're not allowed to carry out executions ourselves because we're a vassal state of the Roman Empire. Well, they just forego all those formalities and prefer mob justice and take him out and execute him. Again, Stephen is like Jesus. Like Jesus, Stephen called Israel to repentance. Like Jesus, Stephen spoke the truth. He testified. I'd say in a winsome way, 
with respect, and as we'll see, with no malice in his heart. But nevertheless, he testified with boldness that evil deeds were in fact evil. Brothers and sisters, this continues to be the vocation of the church. To be salt and light. To be the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative for good. Salt in the ancient world was understood to ward off evil. That's the image. We know that in food it wards off decay. So the church then, if we're the salt of the earth, then we must both not only name, but ward off wickedness. We are to proclaim the truth with boldness. And boldness we will need. We're going to have to be bold because this is what happens. When the gospel is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, people will be cut to the heart, as it says in Acts. That it will move them. It will. When the gospel is proclaimed, when the truth is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, it will cut to the heart because when you are cut to the heart, who you are is laid bare before the eyes of your soul. And then you have a choice to make what you're going to do with that. And so when people are cut to the heart, they are going to inevitably respond. And that response is not always positive. Sometimes it is. And I think we forget that. We think that if we, we speak the truth in love, but nevertheless with boldness and speak it plainly, that we're going to be rejected. And that is going to happen sometimes. But it's like we never entertain the possibility that having the courage to offer out to someone life itself in Jesus Christ, that they might actually come to life. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Peter, not pulling any punches... He doesn't get up there on a unicycle and juggle during his sermon to entertain the crowd. He, he doesn't put on skinny jeans and a deep V-neck so that they think he's cool. He gives it to them straight. And Acts 2.37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Same language as in Acts chapter 7. But their response was to repent. Yeah, he's right. This is our Messiah. To repent, to believe, and to be baptized. But here in Acts 7, and well, back to Pentecost, 3,000 souls on that one day entered the kingdom of God. But here in Acts 7, that was not the response. Rather, their response was rage. It was to double down on rejection of Christ. Again, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart 
and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I read Acts in six and seven, and I'm, this is not part of the sermon. I'm like, this is like another religion. I'm serious. Have we ever had contact with God? Is our experience of Christ anything like this? We need to recover this. We need to find this. We need to be transformed the way this man was transformed. We need to recover the boldness of Stephen. But you know, I think if we're going to do that, if we're going to do that, if we're going to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit, if I'm going to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit, then, then we have to repent. There has to be repentance. I mean, before we can call others to repent and believe, uh, we need to repent and believe. And, and what is it that we need to repent for, that we need to turn away from? I think in part, if we want to talk about the corporate repentance of the church, we need to repent for loving the praise of men more than the praise of God. That our primary concern is that the culture at large thinks well of us instead of what is God going to say of you at the last day when you stand before his throne. The latter should be driving us. The latter should be driving us. We need to repent for fearing man more than we fear God. I believe that. You know what? We need to know the scriptures like Stephen knew them so that our witness in the world and the way that we speak and the way that we live isn't just like the best we could come up with during a spiritual conversation at Starbucks. And Jan, I love Starbucks. That's not a, I, I drink lots of Starbucks. Just like Matt's thoughts on things. We want to by being saturated with the scriptures, actually have and practice the mind of Christ so that our witness in the world can truly be Christ and not ourselves. Jesus on the cross, I love this, he cries out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Stephen, while being stoned, cries out something similar. 
But he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He entrusts himself to the one who entrusted himself to the Father, who was perfectly obedient to the Father. Jesus, while being crucified, and, and says, well, let me actually read it, then I can talk about it. Sorry. <laughs> Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this was so profound at the time that Jesus did it. Because when, within the history of Israel, when, when Israelites under various oppression, whether the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, when they were being executed... As they were being killed, they prayed in precatory psalm. They called down curses upon those who were killing them. They were telling them that at the last day, God is going to get you. How dare you? Which I think was, is understandable. So that Jesus is not calling down curses. Is not whistling for legions of angels, 10,000 angels to come and decimate these people who are crucified. He says, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they do. Similarly, Stephen prays for the mob stoning him. It's powerful. He, he actually kneels down to pray. Or maybe he just kneeled down because he had to and he didn't have the strength to stand in and he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. It's uncanny, the resemblance between, between Stephen and our Lord. And what's amazing is, in one case, we know that God answered Stephen's prayer. Because standing there, participating, giving consent is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a religious elite named Saul, who you know as St. Paul the Apostle. God answered, in part, Paul converts because Stephen prayed for him at his own execution. God answered Stephen's prayer. I'm going, to conclude, I'm going to conclude this morning uh, by reading you a portion of a sermon by a 6th century bishop named Fulgentius, which points out that all that Stephen did was rooted in love for God and others. Yes, he boldly and directly spoke the truth, but he did so in humility, with respect, and most importantly, in love. Here it is. And so the love that brought Christ from heaven to earth raised Stephen from earth to heaven. Shown first in the king, it later shone forth in his soldier. Love was Stephen's weapon by which he gained every battle and so won the crown signified by his name. His love of God kept him from yielding to the ferocious mob. His love for his neighbor made him pray for those who were stoning him. 
Love inspired him to reprove those who erred, to make them amend. Love led him to pray for those who stoned him, to save them from punishment. Strengthened by the power of his love, he overcame the raging cruelty of Saul and won his persecutor on earth as his companion in heaven. In his holy and tireless love, he longed to gain by prayer those whom he could not convert by admonition.